morning. This is Pastor Frank with the Lunch Break Bible Study. 20 minutes, 20 minutes, so that you can listen to this and study the scriptures, even if the only time you have today is your lunch break. We are continuing with the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 4. Jesus has told the parable of the sower at the beginning of this chapter, and what we've seen are two things. Firstly, Jesus is describing the kingdom of God, and we thought, well, how is this the kingdom of God? Because so many terrible things are happening here regarding the way God's word is being spread. Satan is coming and and undoing what Christ has done. The cares and concerns of this world and the deceitfulness of riches are choking out the gospel, and persecution and troubles come because of it. But what we notice is that even in the midst of all those things, there is good soil. This word goes out and is received and bears fruit. And that's what makes it the kingdom of God, that the devil, the world, and our own sinful flesh cannot stop this from happening. And praise be to God for it. What we also noticed is sort of the generosity that the sower, the farmer, uses when he's casting seeds all over the ground. He doesn't prejudge who will and will not receive. He doesn't, he doesn't avoid one person or another. He brings the seed everywhere. And Jesus finishes that parable saying, let everyone who has ears, let him hear. Now, Jesus has some follow-up statements to this, things that help us to understand a little bit more, especially as he gives instructions to his disciples. And we as the church hear those instructions and understand them for ourselves as well. He says, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you and even more. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. And I think those things are kind of confusing if we just kind of cherry pick them out of Mark's gospel and say, well, what does this even mean? And they're ripe for being misunderstood. But that's the importance of understanding context when we study the Bible. See, this context is talking to the disciples about their task of spreading the gospel, of being sowers of the word, just as the farmer sows seed. And just as that sower in that parable was generous and threw seed everywhere, not prejudging where it went, that's what Jesus means by this. He says, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. When God's people are generous in giving that gospel away, when God's people are uh, concentrating on it and working at it and, and casting seed here and there, more grace will abound among us. Verse 26, Jesus continues with this theme of scattering seed, talking about the kingdom of God. But when Jesus uses this word kingdom in the gospels, this is really the reign of God. That is, This is what it's like when God is on the throne. This is what it's like when God is doing his king stuff. This is what the kingdom of God is. He said it's also like a man scattering seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. And as soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. Now, we know a lot more about how seeds grow than we used to. We understand that they wait for the soil temperature to reach an optimal uh, time for them, and they begin to grow there. We, We understand lots more than they did, but it's still very mysterious, isn't it? 
The more we learn about our natural world, the more we are puzzled by it. The more we don't understand, the more we recognize how little we truly understand. But notice what the work of the church is in the world. He says, a man scatters seed on the ground, right? And as soon as, in verse 29, as soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because harvest has come. Jesus says the kingdom of God is like this because the kingdom of God comes not from our own understanding, not from our own effort. It emerges from Jesus' work and through the Spirit. It is for us to harvest what has been sown. See, the primary work for us as God's people in this world is to sow that seed and to reap the harvest. All of the things we do boil down to those primary tasks. The same thing that Jesus claimed was his purpose. Remember when he said he had to go uh, leave that Capernaum and go out? His disciples said, come back to town, everybody's looking for you. And Jesus says, no, let's go to the other towns and villages and do what? Preach there also, for that is why he had come. That is always going to be the work of the church. The job of the church is to be speaking and doing, but it's the speaking that makes the church the church. We do many good things, right? We help many people. We serve many people. We serve our communities. We serve all sorts of people, but there are many people in the world that do good things. You don't have to be a Christian to be good. There are many good people who will never darken the doorway of a church, but the church's job is to rescue all people. St. Paul uses this same theme of scattering seed and seed growing when he writes to the Corinthians. He talks about his ministry, and he talks about the factions that have arisen among the people in Corinth. He says, I planted and Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. St. Paul is saying, I don't know how this happens. The Lord does it the same way that Jesus talks about it here. The Lord does his work. Our job is to sow the seed and reap the harvest, the same way that Jesus was sowing seed all through his ministry. And then a third time, beginning in verse 30, Jesus speaks about the kingdom of God in terms of seed. He says, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like, or what parable shall we use to describe it? It's like a mustard seed, which is a small seed you plant in the ground, and yet when you plant it, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the birds of the air can perch in its shade. Here again, what does it mean for God's kingdom, God's work, God's activity to be happening in the world? He says the small things, the humble things, the things that seem lowly like the seed of a small plant, and yet when the Lord is done with them, when they reach their fullest potential, they are the greatest things there. Now we don't have to go very far to recognize that Jesus himself is like this small seed. It is he who is born a baby in Bethlehem. Nothing special about him, nothing special about his family, except that he is the Son of God. And because of that, he goes on to do many great and wonderful things. But the most significant way that this is reflected in Jesus is that when Jesus himself is not planted, but buried. This man who was made small who was lifted up onto a cross, was placed in a tomb, there to be left forever. But that's not where he stayed. And indeed, when he was planted, he emerged. He came out of the grave and became the greatest of all things. Verse 33. With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. But when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. 
Remember when he said that the secret of the kingdom of God had been given to his disciples? This is him doing that in verse 34. He was giving the secrets. Now, you'll notice that Mark gives the explanation. He decodes the parable for the parable of the soils. But notice here with the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the farmer, Mark doesn't decode those for us. I think it's because he's expecting the people that read this to have the Holy Spirit and to be able to do this work themselves. Verse 35, that day, remember Jesus was in a boat teaching the crowds, then evening comes, and he says to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. So they leave the crowd behind on the shore there. They're already in the boats, and they took Jesus along in the boat, and there were other boats with him. Now, verse 37 says a furious squall or storm or windstorm or waves or whatever, a, a, a pretty rough time on the on the Sea of Galilee there comes, and the waves break over the boats. You can imagine this little fishing boat on, on the Sea of Galilee with this huge storm blowing, and then the boat was nearly uh, capsized. It was nearly full of water. But look at verse 38. It says, Jesus was in the stern sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him up and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Now, the NIV translators use that word, drown, there. They're picking up on the danger that the, that the disciples are immediately facing. But I think the ESV and the King James do a better job with this because they keep the generic word, perish. The disciples say, Teacher, don't you care if we perish? Don't you care if we die? Now, you can imagine... Um, for people in the early church, the earliest readers of Mark's gospel, and then also people in our world today, when we read this, the disciples asking Jesus, don't you care if we are perishing? God's people suffer many things all over the world, and you can imagine how they feel when they suffer evil because of their following Jesus. But they don't leave him alone. They go to him and ask him for help. So he gets up, And then in verse 39, it says he rebuked. Now, this is the same word used to describe what Jesus does to the evil spirit in Mark chapter 1. He rebukes. He basically tells them to shut up. He says to the winds and the waves, quiet, be still. Then all of a sudden, the wind dies down and was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? That is, why do you tell me that you are perishing? Do you think I will allow this to happen? Do you think I don't know what's going on? Verse 41, it says, They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Now, literally, it says, They feared a great fear. And this fear is used like ours. It means just simple terror, right? They were just terrified. But this word in the Greek is also the word to describe the fear of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord is reverence, awe, and worship. And maybe if you don't have the Spirit of God in the judgment of all things, you will fear as in be terrified of the Lord. But if you do have the Spirit of God, if you are one of his people, maybe you fear Jesus in the sense of reverence and awe at the judgment. Verse 41, it says, They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. And that's a really good question to ask. Because this word that is used here in verse 39, that he rebuked the wind, not only is this the same word that Mark uses to describe how Jesus talks to the the evil spirit when Jesus exerts his authority over that spirit, this is also the word used back in Psalm 106, verse 9, when it talks about God mastering the Red Sea. It uses the same word, rebuke, 
In chapter 5, verse 1, they get across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. So this is where the, uh, this is a Gentile region. This is where uh, non-Jews are living. When Jesus gets out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit, right? We've seen these before in the Gospel of Mark, comes from the tombs, that is the graveyard, the cemetery, to meet Jesus. Now, this man lived in the tombs, right? And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he, he had often been chained hand and foot. Now, this is the amazing thing. He would tear the chains apart and break the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills he would cry out and cut himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. So you get a picture of a man who is completely nuts. No one in the community could stop what was going on here and where the entire community had sort of abandoned him to go live in the graveyard, right? What can, what can we do? We can't do anything with him. We can't hold him down. We can't tie him down. We can't chain him down. He just breaks everything. So they gave up on him, and he let him go and live in the tombs where he could harm himself but no one else. But that's not good enough for Jesus to leave him alone like that. Jesus said to him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. So you get the notion, oh, This isn't just one spirit who is afflicting this man. This is many spirits afflicting him. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. So here it is, so much much for the idea that Jesus is in league with Satan or something, right? You have these uh, these, uh, spirits, these evil spirits who are desperately begging Jesus not to do what they know he can do. Now verse 11, a large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. So here we are in the Gentile regions and... It is uncleanness piled on top of uncleanness piled on top of uncleanness. You have an evil spirit here afflicting this man. This man lives among the dead. And now we're going to look up and we're going to see this herd of pigs, an unclean animal, an animal that the Jews would have nothing to do with because it has been declared unclean by God back in the Old Testament. In verse 12, it says, The demons begged Jesus, Send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. And then it says he gave them permission. Notice also that Jesus in the past has just told the demons to be quiet. He doesn't let them speak. But here, for some reason, he's, having, he's engaging with them. He's speaking to them. And instead of commanding them, here he gives them permission. And the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. And then that herd of pigs, that herd of unclean animals, now possessed by unclean spirits, about 2,000 of them rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people came out to see what would happen. Now, this very fate of going into the water and drowning, right, this is the thing that the disciples were so afraid of, drowning in the sea. Jesus rescues his faithful disciples from this fate, but he sends the unclean spirits to their judgment. And the kind of judgment that is often, often mentioned in the Old Testament as the judgment of God, that is to be overwhelmed, to be drowned in the waters, right? Just like back in the days of Noah and the unbelieving world was drowned in the waters of the flood, just like in the days of Moses when hard-hearted Pharaoh and all his his people were drowned in the waters of the Red Sea. So also now, 
These demons suffer the judgment of God. They are drowned and destroyed. Now, verse 15, when the people came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. So just the opposite of what his accuser said, Jesus didn't come to be in league with Satan. He comes to rid people of Satan and to restore sanity, restore people to their right minds. And just like those Israelites in those days when they made it through on dry ground and Pharaoh and all his hosts were washed away, just like Noah when they came through on the ark and all the unbelieving world was washed away, this man is sitting there and the demons that had plagued him were washed away. This has a big meaning for us, because we too, not to the degree of this man, but we too are beset in this world by evil. Now, we don't live among the tombs, but we are afflicted by Satan. He does attack. He finds us at our lowest points and seeks to end our relationship with Jesus there, end our relationship with one another. But the flood of God's grace comes to us and rids us of those things. Now, when the people see what has happened, they see the power that Jesus has, they were afraid again. Here's that fear word. Now, what is it going to mean for these people? Are they going to be afraid? Are they going to fear Jesus the way we fear the Lord in terms of awe and reverence? Or are they going to fear Jesus in terms of terror? Verse 16. Those who had seen what happened told the people and told about the pigs as well. And we get our answer. The people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. So they preferred nothing rather than the power that they had seen. The people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. They they did not fear Jesus as in fear of the Lord. They feared Jesus as in fear of the powerful one who had the authority over the world, afraid of him because of what he could do, and rather than seeking mercy from him, like many other places had, they cast him away. Verse 18, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him, but Jesus did not allow it. He said, go home to your family. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Jesus is telling him, you now go and sow like that sower. Go and spread the word of this gospel that the kingdom of God has come. Repent and believe. And so the man did. Verse 20, he went away and began to tell in the um, Decapolis. It's the, the Decapolis are 10 cities founded uh, by, by people of Greek culture and had given some, and the Romans had given them some kind of self-governing authority. Uh, There were Jewish people there. There were Gentiles there. There's some conflict between those groups. But the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. The man is a Gentile, and he's going around and telling people what the Messiah of the Jews could do. And all the people were amazed. Now, this is a different word than what was translated as amazed regarding Jesus' teaching with authority. There, back in the synagogue in Capernaum, when the people were amazed, they were really shocked at what he was doing. What he was doing was really out of place. But here, I think the word is better translated. Uh, This word means amazed. The people said, this is amazing what has happened and what this man can do. And that's where we're going to end for today. Uh, This is, uh, we are in chapter 5, verse 8, no, verse 20 here. 
I've got a couple of shout-outs. I'm, I'm very late on getting to these, but I hope that, uh, that if this is your comment that you hear this today, I wanted to say thanks for the support. My friend Joan says uh, that she loves having a short Bible study to listen to, and that's kind of the that's kind of the um, that's kind of the driver for this. Someone asked me why I started doing a Bible study, and it was because I couldn't find one that I was looking for. I couldn't find something short. I couldn't find something that was uh, that treated the scriptures um, seriously, and also understood that that context is super important in understanding anything in the Bible. And uh, so I couldn't really find what I was looking for, and I said, well, if if I'm looking for it, well, then maybe other people are looking for it too, and I wanted to provide it as best I could. So uh, thanks to everybody for, for putting up with me as I kind of fumble my way through these uh, first episodes. It's it's a lot of fun, but thanks, Joan, for the, for the nice words. Also, thanks to Melissa. She recommended the Lunch Break Bible Study. This is from Facebook. She says, wonderful podcast, great listen. I really like that they are short so I can actually finish an episode in one sitting. Pastor Frank is a great speaker and so knowledgeable about the Bible. He does a great job explaining everything. Thanks, Melissa. That's very, very kind of you. So um, if you see this, if you can find me on Facebook, just search for the Lunch Break Bible Study. Um, that's me. <laughs> um, and uh, and like the page, and that way when I put an update out, it'll, it'll show you on Facebook. If you have a favorite podcast app that you use either on your phone or on your tablet or your computer uh, just subscribe to this you can re- you can find this podcast just about everywhere that uh, just about every app that has podcasts will have this available iTunes has it uh, Google podcasts has it my host the hosts uh, network that I use is anchor.fm um, you can find me on there. Uh, also if you if you can go to uh, Facebook I and like the page on Facebook, Whenever I publish a new episode, um, it'll show up in your news feed. Make sure you like that when you see it in the news feed so that uh, Facebook learns that, oh, hey, you like hearing from the Lunch Break Bible Study. We'll make sure that, they, that the Lunch Break Bible Study shows up on your, on, your, uh, on your wall. Also, if you give me a five-star rating on Facebook or on iTunes, that's super helpful for me. You can reach me at lunchbreakbiblestudy at gmail.com. That's the email address here. I really appreciate all the support you guys have been giving me, and I hope you have a blessed day.